0: Hello and welcome to the FT Advisor podcast, the weekly podcast series brought to you by FT Advisor. Each week, we'll be joined by guests from the industry to discuss the most pressing issues of the day. I'm David Thorpe, reporter, FT Advisor. Joining me today are Bertie Danat, investment director at Ruffer, and Jordan Sriharan, head of multi-asset portfolio service at Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management. Good morning to you both, and thank you for joining me. Good Good morning, David. As thoughts turn rapidly to 2020, political and economic uncertainties abound. But no one seems to have told equity investors, as many of those markets have hit new highs, been a shift away from some of the equities that have performed well for the past decade, while bond yields perform little consolation for income investors. Jordan, as a multi-asset investor, has asset allocation become more difficult to understand with central bank policies as they are and record low interest rates? Yes,
1: yeah, it's, it's an interesting question, David. Clearly, central banks have impaired the price discovery mechanism and that inherently makes asset allocation more difficult because if there is an artificial flaw to the price of bonds, the price of equities, understanding the relative value between one or the other when you're building a multi-asset portfolio is is, is extremely difficult and what what it has done the the interaction of of central banks low interest rates is is heightened the correlation between defensive and growth assets i would say the flip side to 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 the current situation though is that we've had falling yields in government bonds for 30 years with equity market gyrations at the same time you know is today's environment any any more different to what we've experienced over the last 30 years
0: bertie what what are your thoughts on that um a lot the traditional rules of asset allocation about, you know, 60, 40, and you, you rotate between those two numbers depending on, on market conditions and sentiment. Do, do
2: any of those things still work? Yes, thank you, David. And I think you're exactly right to hit on this idea that the policies that central banks have been employing to stimulate financial markets, principally ultra-low interest rates across developed market economies since 2009, have Distorted the price in our minds of all conventional asset classes together, whether that be bonds, shares, property. And the analogy I'd ask you to picture in your mind is that of a a rising tide lifting all boats, where the tide is the central bank stimulus and the individual boats are those different asset classes. And the problem to our minds that this has created is that there's been no real diversification available across conventional asset classes. And secondly, there's a very real risk at this juncture that in the same way that this tide of central bank stimulus has raised all conventional asset prices together, that if the tide was to turn, all conventional asset prices might fall together, which I think is, is worth reflecting on.
0: Thank you. Uh, g- given those comments and, and, the, and the comments um, Jordan's made, how do you actually view bonds within a a portfolio if they're essentially correlated with equities because they've been lifted by the same boat we can look at it and say you know well we've got economic growth in the world so there's some justification for for equity allocations how do you treat bonds have you dialed completely down on bonds or done something else
2: yeah I, i mean our simple answer to this is that we don't advocate investing in conventional bonds at this stage In our view, there is very limited upside and the potential returns have been compressed. And in the event of uh, a change in monetary conditions, we think the downside in the bond market is both significant and asymmetric. So if you want to invest in the bond market, in our view, you could either invest defensively, so buy a very short-dated government bond, Which is akin to a cash proxy, or indeed invest how we invest in the bond market, which is to invest negatively, whereby we scan the bond market for the area where we think the most stress is building up. Currently, we think that's the corporate bond space. And then we buy an instrument like a credit default swap, which should appreciate significantly in value when, in our view, this overpriced asset class falls sharply. Thank you, Jordan. How do you view bond? Allocation?
1: Yeah, it's it's a good question because I think I think to take a, the first derivative is what what role do you think bonds should play in your portfolio? And for some investors, bonds have a very defensive property that they play in multi asset portfolios. And in some, uh, for some investors, they play a kind of a more of a growth asset type of um, position in, in their portfolios. And if if you're a multi asset investor who believes that bonds should play a defensive um, role. Then, then government bonds, US treasuries, um, German bonds, Japanese government bonds, and to some extent, gilts as well, provide that kind of defensive anchor in your portfolio. So you need to take it back perhaps one step to say kind of what is your approach to, to long-term multi-investing. And if it's to be defensive, then I think government bonds do play an important role in that because it is difficult to time coming in and out of those particular instruments. If your view is that bonds play more of a, a growth role in your portfolio, then There are some relative value opportunities that I think might come into play in 2020. If you think about the investment-grade corporate bond market, it's had a fantastic run in 2019. The sterling corporate bond market is up 10%, double digits. Global investment grade is up 9, 9 9.5%. Could you expect the same returns in 2020? It, it's perhaps unlikely. Could you see perhaps negative returns? Perhaps that's likely. So, the opportunity to switch out of corporate bonds that have done well into perhaps parts of the markets like more esoteric, the emerging market debt space, for example, has had a very tough 2019. The likes of Argentina, Ecuador, Lebanon have all seen their bond prices fall significantly. So, we're not advocating a like for like swap, but to, 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 to come out of areas that have done well and perhaps into areas that have done better.
0: Thank you. It's interesting when you were mentioning there the uh the two rationales that people might have for investing in bonds and you mentioned defensive and and growth you didn't mention income and i guess the traditional reason to have uh to have fixed in- interest what was for income but in the current market conditions we're in a very strange scenario where people are almost buying equities for income and bonds for growth which is the reverse of what used to happen given how anomalous that is given all the we've said about central bank policy. Do you think it's harder to actually measure the risk in in a financial instrument
1: now, Jordan? Yeah, sure. One, one point, sorry, about, um, about the income, which is quite important, is that I, th- I think multi-asset investing has, has moved to more of a total return approach rather than being focused purely on income because of what central bank policy has done to yield. So, so I think the market has evolved as well to take account of, of, of lower income. The point about risk is also a, a fair question because in putting an artificial floor to bond prices through through central bank intervention you've also put artificially a floor to to the level of volatility because volatility is a function of of deviation in price. So by putting a floor to bond price, you're putting a floor to, to, to volatility measure. So yes, it's it's clearly changed the way risk is measured. Um, and as a result, we've kind of perhaps looked to, to to understand other parts of risk. So rather than looking at quantitatively through just volatility, trying to understand in more detail the underlying investment risk inherent in that particular asset. So, so risk perhaps has moved away from being overly quantitatively focused on volatility, because as we've noted that it's been artificially suppressed and looking more across the holistic piece as to what the underlying pieces in that asset uh, what, what the risk pieces are within that asset sorry
0: thank you Bertie. how do you see that have have traditional ideas of what is a risky or not risky asset been skewed in your head i mean government bonds were the traditional risk-free asset some of them have a negative yield i'm not really sure how you equ- how you square a negative yielding asset and obviously negative yielding bonds are essentially the most expensive they've been in a thousand years because they're negative yielding and how you square that with traditional notions of what is risky and not risky
2: Uh, absolutely david and to, to echo jordan's comments too we are very much in the camp that we believe the industry's traditional method for measuring risk namely volatility has also been caught up in this distortion in the price of conventional asset classes, which, as discussed, has pushed them up to all-time highs, but at the same time has compressed volatility down to near-all-time lows. And I think another facet of this is both the complacency and the misplaced sense of confidence that has crept in to the investor community as part of this trend, which, if you layer on to the observation, that volatility over the last 10 years has also increasingly become an asset class which investors choose to speculate and invest and trade in and out of too. And all of this has done a great deal to corrode and impair the ability of volatility to be an accurate measure of risk. So, in summary, I completely agree with, with the sentiment of your question and would we'll just go one further to say that we very much view that volatility as a measure of risk has now become part of the problem because actually it's implying that investors are running a lot less risk in individual asset classes like bonds and indeed in their overall portfolios at the very time when asset prices are at all-time highs and we think that that underplaying of the genuine risk is is quite dangerous thank you and partly
0: we've we've seen some element of of, of shift in, in equity markets over over the past few months, with the, many of the equities that have performed very well for, for 10 years in the fast-moving consumer goods space, for example, uh, starting to underperform relative to those uh, more economically sensitive type stocks. I guess in the industry parlance we say growth has started to underperform relative to, to value. But given that central bank policy hasn't sort of dramatically changed relative to what it was over the past decade, given that bond yields are still lower negative, or negative and many of those fast-moving consumer good equities have prices that are very closely linked to bonds. Why do you think there has been this shift and do you expect it to, to continue?
2: Uh, I mean, there clearly has been a shift in favour of value, economically sensitive type names relative to growth over the last couple of weeks. For this trend to continue, I think what we need to see is investors break their dependency or even their addiction on central bank stimulus, which has kept the discount rate so low after the last two, three and five years, which has favoured growth stocks and see investors focus more on the prospect and believe in the prospect of genuine economic growth, which would then favour some of the value, more economically sensitive stocks. Now, at this juncture, I think it's unclear as to how this equity rotation is going to play out. There are certainly signs it's starting to fizzle out. However, one could see that if we get some more certainty around the US-China trade deal, if we get some more certainty around Brexit, and if the US economy was to continue to surprise analysts to the upside, from a point of very low expectation, then I can think the value and cyclical trade could have further to go. However, we could quite easily lurch back into the world of dependency on central bank stimulus, which would keep the discount rate low, which would favour growth stocks. Or indeed, I think we should be alive to the prospect that it could all just degenerate from here.
0: Thank you. Jordan, have you been one of those investors who's been taking part in that Rotation away from from growth funds or, or stocks and and into more. I was speaking with one of the better known UK value equity managers this week, and he was talking about how his fund had in October the first month of net inflows for over three years. Sure. So, it, so somebody is is moving this uh, moving in this direction. Have you been?
1: Sure. Yeah. And, and we we have been slightly at the margins, and that is. A function of an equity market that has been driven up really by quality growth type names or, or companies, and as a result, if, if that's if that's lifted your performance materially over the last three, four, call it five years, then you want to be aware of of the relative value opportunities, and so switching out a bit of your quality growth fund names into more value names has been something that we've done in the past few months. Actually, I would add that the the, the idea of the rotation kind of coming to an end quite you know, sooner or later. It's a, it's a difficult one to call, really, and, and actually the rotation into value in the first place in, in kind of let's call it August, August, September of this year was, was difficult to call. And the market seems to rotate under this uh, assumption that effectively the world's moving to a, a state of structurally higher growth, and that happened in you know post-Trump election in October 16. There, there is this assumption by the market that oh, we're moving to a new state of growth that's structurally higher and therefore value now provides... Um, Uh, sort of a a more fertile ground to to plough. But actually, I think also the the earnings growth in some of the more tech growth names like the Fangs have actually not weakened as such, but perhaps looking a slightly bit more cyclical than perhaps before. It was assumed that the likes of Facebook, Amazon... And Google would carry on growing earnings effectively in perpetuity, but starting to plateau a bit over, over the last couple of quarters, and so that might be the kickstart the value needs. Which is that growth, growth, and tech names perhaps are not this all singing, all dancing opportunity set, but actually there are other opportunities in different sectors within equities that might do well now.
0: Thank you, Bertie. From your comments, I think our, our listeners can uh, deduce that you're somewhat sceptical about the uh, potential for for strong equity market returns going forward but where, where do you see value in equities where are you allocating to whether that be by sector or geography or, or style how, how, how are you doing doing it right now uh,
2: we certainly uh, tilted our portfolios into some of these more economically sensitive value type names over the last couple of weeks too and in particular we focused on the UK where we've taken the opportunity to place the money in the opportunities in UK domestic equities where we see the potential for a more sure footing around Brexit um, to to potentially play out.
0: Thank you. Do you view the US market as continuing to be attractive? It hit a new yet another new record high I think uh, about a month ago. That market seems at the moment to move based on the US President's tweets about uh, China and trade deals given that Th- those uh, gyrations put at a high valuation multiple h-
2: how do you see the u.s i think fundamentally how we see the whole piece for equities is really a case of whether global growth can continue to surprise to the upside and in the event of that happening and if we do see greater certainty around the u.s china trade talks for example and uh, more local issues in this countries, then i think you can easily see how value, more economically sensitive stocks in the US could have another leg up. But in the absence of that coming through, then I think you know, we can easily transition back to a world of where really we've been for the last you know, three or five years of this dependency on central bank stimulus, the discount rate staying low. And in that environment, it will be the growthy names, the tech names that will, will dominate. Thank you.
0: Jordan, how important is liquidity likely to be in 2020? We've had, 2019 has probably been the story of liquidity with the Woodford Equity Income Fund. And more recently, even as we as we record this show, the M&G Property Portfolio Fund, both suspending redemptions as a result of liquidity worries. So it's going to be front and centre of, of the news, if you like, in 2020. Is it something that uh, advisors and clients have to be mindful of?
1: It's a great question. Excuse me. Because liquidity is never an issue until it absolutely is. And that, that, that's the bizarre thing about it. I, I, and... The thing about the the M and G story is that you had the likes of Threadneedle and and other property funds gating in in you know in in mid sixteen post referendum. So three and a half years later, why M and G should come kind of, now? Obviously, there are flow reasons. I'm not going to comment directly on that. But it, it is interesting how it wasn't an issue for them until three years later when it, when it suddenly is. So it's very it's, it, that kind of it's quite a timely sort of example of, of of that point. And actually, one one of the questions we I often hear. Asked to fund managers, is how, how is liquidity? How, how, how do you view it? You know, what, what do you feel liquidity conditions are like? And I always find that quite an interesting question because, as, as the investor in that particular fund and that fund manager, the first question I'd ask myself is, do you want to own that particular asset class in a downturn and a correction? Because if the answer is no, then you shouldn't be invested in the fund in the first place. So that, that should be your first liquidity question altogether. Do you want to be invested in a downturn in that particular fund and that asset class that it's in? And, and the second question, that asking fund managers about liquidity alludes to is are they worried that the underlying buyer base in that fund are quite flighty and are likely to to, to upstick and go at the first sign of a kind of a risk off event? And if that is the case, then you shouldn't be investing in that fund in the first place either. So I find the question of liquidity to fund managers as, as a bit of an oxymoron. It's kind of it, it, it's interesting enough, but it doesn't really tell you how you'd be investing in the fund over the medium term.
0: Thank you. Bertie, have you reacted to these? liquidity events and the uh, heightened concern in in the market? Is it something that is part of your portfolio construction?
2: Uh, Yes, absolutely. And and a really central part of our portfolio construction, David. To our minds, liquidity means two things. Firstly, it means the amount of money swirling around in the financial system at any moment in time. And the more money swirling around, that pushes up asset prices generally. And secondly, liquidity means the ability to trade in and out of a particular asset class without affecting the price. And we think both facets of liquidity are very important at this juncture and represent a permanent tripwire to financial markets. Of those two forms of liquidity, the first is probably the most important. And we saw last year when the Americans decided to tighten US dollar liquidity, what impact that had on risk assets and in particular the equity market. This year has been a story where the liquidity taps have been turned back on and equity markets have recovered. And I think uh, something to reflect on as we move into 2020 is if we do see a change in monetary conditions, uh, that could cause equity markets a real problem.
0: Thank you. By monetary conditions and tightening it. You, you mean the level of quantitative easing and, and interest rate movements up, right? Uh,
2: uh, absolutely, absolutely. Thank
0: you. Given your, both of you have um, expressed some concern, shall we say, about the level of valuations and the traditional asset allocation rules that um, advisors and clients will be familiar with, Bertie, how do you view alternative assets within within a, a portfolio? There there seem to be a lot of funds, a lot of product that has come to market offering a uh, unitized exposure to alternatives is that an area you're you're happy to play in, and if you are allocating more to alternatives, what's it at the expense of?
2: Well, David, given uh, the concerns that we have around how expensive conventional asset prices have become and the potential for them all to fall together, then on the face of it, an investment in alternative strategies should. Uh, represent a key part in a multi-asset class portfolio going into 2020. However, the reality is that many of these alternative strategies that come to the market actually march to the same drumbeat and get caught up in the same tide as their conventional brethren. So they're really correlated to the stuff when you're trying to get uncorrelated. Absolutely right. Often they're merely equity in disguise, perhaps with lower mark-to-market points, or they're even more sensitive to market rates, interest rates, than conventional asset classes. So I think what investors need to bear in mind is that if you can find a genuine alternative, uh, then I think that's a really important part of the portfolio construction process. But just be very wary of buying an alternative strategy many of which are very illiquid many of which come hand in hand with a lack of knowledge and a lack of understanding and should the investment tide turn then what investors can easily find themselves in a position of is being high and dry with a product they don't really understand and in short they're stuck
0: thank you jordan alternatives means obviously can mean a very broad range of uh, of assets from student property and aircraft leasing at at one end to uh, very complicated derivatives I'm not clever enough to understand at the other. So I'm mindful of how broad the the potential area is. How how do you view alternatives right now? What sort of alternatives would you allocate to?
1: Yeah, it's interesting because um, alternatives are seen as the holy grail of investing. It's kind of high return for low risk You know, it's in, and no textbook teaches you that's even possible so it's it's amazing that they have as much of a prominence in some portfolios as, as, as they do i i don't you know I, I do agree that they are an important part of diversification and when you're building a multi-asset portfolio alternatives are an important component of that and so so what we what we're trying to think about a bit more perhaps in, in the, the last few months is if if you want something with zero correlation in that particular bucket. Then so think about assets that sort are of zero correlated. Think about assets with, with a low correlation. So in that respect, you know, think about gold. We're thinking about cash. You're thinking about Japanese yen. These kind of risk off kind of zero, low correlated uh, assets with, with, with risk assets. So, so that's kind of, we, we've perhaps, turned alternatives around to think of it as more of a protection, low correlation bucket than trying to call it alternatives and having a mishmash of all, of all sorts in there.
0: Thank you. Bertie, Jordan, thank you for joining us this week. Tune in next week for another issue of the FD Advisor Podcast. Thank you.
1: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has experienced teams. ...who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor... What's a mistake they made that changed their approach? And how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.